0: Let's pray. Father, we just come to you this morning, Lord, and we thank you that, uh, that you never change, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you're not fickle like us. You don't change with uh, the, the time of the day or the time of the year. The seasons don't affect you, Lord. You, you're, you're not moody or unstable in any way, but, but, but known are all your works from the beginning of time, even till now. And you're the same. And so we just come to you, Lord, and we give thanks that you have, you've called us by name. You've written our names in the book of life. You, you've foreseen this morning, Lord, before any of us even breathed our first breath. And Lord, you know where each one of us are, are at. You know our situations. You know our struggles, our doubts, our fears. You know uh, our plans and our, our call and our victories. And, and, and Lord, you know all things. And so we just present ourselves before you this morning. We ask that your Word would uh, speak to us, that you would make it alive in us, Lord, and and that that this would instruct us, that we would build ourselves up in our most holy faith, and that you would be our Lord and our God, and that you would help us to walk with you and and to uh, be that light that you call us to be, that city that's on a hill, that we might be an example, Lord, in in our homes and our jobs and. Uh, And in society, and in this world, in this country, Lord, that's fallen by the wayside, that we might stand as lights. And so we give you thanks uh, this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. In Paul's closing words to the Ephesians, in the letter that he wrote to them, he gives to them instruction about the spiritual war that we're in. And he says to them in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And, and that word wiles is is the key word in that verse, at least as far as what we're talking about here uh, this morning. Because the wiles basically is the cunning or the deception or uh, you know, the, 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 the tricky plans, if you would. You remember from watching uh, Looney Tunes years ago, Wiley e. Coyote and uh, what was it? The Roadrunner, you know, and there was this constant conflict, this coyote, and, and he would have wiles. He would make plans to try to wipe out the Roadrunner, you know, and that's, that's the, kind of the idea behind the word when it talks about the wiles of the devil, the cunning of the devil. And so this morning, we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about, first of all, the wiles of the devil, that is, the cunning, the, 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 the M.O. or the way that he does what he does. And then we're going to talk about our defenses. Uh, and, and we'll keep it real simple. This is by no means exhaustive. In order for us to be exhaustive in this, it would take, uh, you, know, s- you know, several hours, you know, but, but just in, in the simplest way that we can cover the most ground, I'll share with you three simple things concerning Satan's wiles, his methods and modes, and then uh, five things concerning our defense and how we can stand up against his attack and his desire uh, to wipe us out. And so, uh, what are are the wiles of the devil? Well, the first thing that that we notice as we look at him in the scripture is that he is a great observer. His first method is just simple observation. I've asked you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you notice in uh, verse 8, Peter writes to the church and he says this. He says, be sober. Be vigilant, be on guard, be aware, because your adversary, your enemy, the one who would seek to destroy you, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He compares Satan and his attack against us to that of a lion. And that's a great illustration. It's an excellent analogy. Because if you've ever seen any of the nature shows, you know, National Geographic <coughs> Channel or, or any of those things, or if you've ever studied animal behaviors, you know, the lion is the king of the forest. He's at the top of the food chain uh, in terms of his domain and where he prowls and operates. And, and the way that a lion seeks to destroy or to kill or to feed himself is first of all, very basically, is he just observes. He lurks in the shadows and he watches the flock or the, you know, the herd of animals that he's seeking to feed off of and he just watches them. He watches their movement, how they operate and where they go. He, he observes their migration patterns and, and, and where they are throughout the various seasons that he might understand their behavior. And then he studies their manner where they eat, what they eat, where they're vulnerable, what areas he could best make his attack, and he just watches. And then after watching the group as a whole, then he'll observe individuals. Where's the weak spot? Where's the weakest link? Where are the young? Who's lagging behind? Which ones are apt to separate from the herd? And he'll just watch not, nobody knows that he's there. He he's might not be planning to strike for a week or two weeks or a month or, or anything, but he's just learning what's taking place among that herd. And, and, and Peter tells us here that that's the way Satan operates as he seeks to be our adversary and seek to wipe us out, as he just watches. And, and he watches really on two fronts. The first one is that he observes mankind generically. Or, if you would, he, he makes universal observations, things that are true about all men. You remember when Satan was before the Father in the instance of Job, and the Father speaks to the devil who was giving account as he must, and, and he comes and, and, and the Father says, Have you considered my servant Job? That he loves righteousness, that he hates evil, and and basically he he boasts on Job in the presence of Satan. And two times, Satan made accusations against Job, things that are universal to all men. He says to, you know, concerning the first thing, he says, well, he's a mercenary. He, He only serves you because you've blessed him. The only reason that he doesn't deny you or sin against you is because of the good that you've done for him. He's a mercenary. If you take away the blessing from him, then he'll curse you to your face. Now that was a general observation. He looked at mankind as a whole and he saw that we have that nature. That if someone does right by us, we tend to do right by them. But if somebody dogs us or, or we feel like we're being slighted, then we will also slight them. And so he brought that accusation. He said, I could get him to curse you because I know, man, take away the blessing and he'll curse you to your face. Just very generic observation. Well, it didn't work. His blessing was removed. Job didn't curse. And so Satan comes back and the father boasts on him the second time. And he says, have you considered my servant Job that he loves righteousness and hates evil and, and, and the whole thing? And then he makes the second general claim or accusation based on his observation of all men he says to him well okay he's not a mercenary but every man will buckle under the pressure of self-preservation flesh for flesh all that a man has will he give in exchange for his flesh let me hurt him physically and he'll curse you to his face See, so Satan makes these observations about man universally and he tucks them into his pocket of understanding when he's planning to attack. He knows things about men, universal, things that are just true about our human nature and he uses those things against us. The second way that he observes us is not the universal observations, but the individual observations, You recall the story of Samson from the book of Judges, chapter 14, 15, and 16. And and it's a great story because Samson was a man of incredible strength, a man with incredible gifts and talents and potential and a call of God and and, and even effective service, things that he did that no one else could ever do. I mean, he slew a 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, who can say that, hey, I've done that, you know? Not many, if any, just Samson, you know. But he was a man with great weaknesses. And we see this principle of Satan as a lion played out incredibly in the life of Samson. We see that his story didn't end well. And what we see along the way is that Satan just made observations. He just watched him. He didn't attack. He didn't, you know, throw in Delilah on the first day. He just watched Samson. And as he watched his life, the first thing he saw is that as he just looked at him, just watching him, Satan didn't, or Samson didn't even know he was there. He's got a weakness for women. He's got a weakness for women. He, he, he told his dad, just go get me that girl. Well, she's not the right one, son. That, she's a Philistine. It, no, no, dad, I want that one. That's the one I want. Get her for me. You know? Oh, okay. And so Satan just writes it down. He's a great note taker. He's got a weakness for women. Then he just watches him further. And then he sees, oh, wow, this man will compromise. He was a Nazirite. And as a Nazirite, he was never to come in contact with a carcass, a dead thing. It was just part of that rule. He was to be a Nazirite from his birth because of the call of God upon his life. But when he was hungry, when, hey, this seems like this is providence. It's from God. And there's a bee's nest in the carcass of that lion. And I'm hungry. And there's honey. And Hey, who cares? Nobody sees, nobody knows. And he went in and he grabbed the honey from the carcass. He compromised when no one was looking, when no one would know. And Satan just said, Huh, he'll compromise. He'll 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 do it. He, I could get him to compromise when no one's looking. He saw that he had him there. Then a little while longer, he watched Samson's life and he said, Wow, this man's covetous. He was gambling with the Philistines for for clothing he he was covetous he wanted their clothing and he knew he could win and so he made a a bet that he knew he couldn't lose and you know he ends up losing the bet because uh well you know this isn't a study on samson you could read the story but he goes a little bit further and satan just watches he sees this guy's got anger issues he needs to take anger management classes. You know, he, he, he blew his stack a couple of times when he was personally slighted. And he's like, oh, I can get him. He's, he's got, he doesn't have his emotions in check. And so he just makes, makes, the, makes the observation. And then he makes this other observation too. That Samson is extremely prayerless. We never see him praying. He relied so much upon his own strength and upon his own gifts, and his own abilities, that he never relied upon God. The only time you ever see Samson praying is when he, after he killed a thousand men with the jawbone, he doesn't give thanks for the victory. He complains that there was no water to drink. And he says, God, you've given me this great victory, but now I'm going to die of thirst. And he he complains before the Lord. That's the only prayer uh, until, of course, the end of his life when he says, oh Lord, help me once more and, you know, ends it all. You know, and, and you read the story, you, you see what happened there. But Satan just took notes over a period of months or over a period of years. He just saw what was going on in this man's life and then he made a plan. And here comes Delilah. And you know the story, ultimately she took him down and 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 Satan was able to employ every weakness that he saw in Samson to drive in a wedge and little by little drive it a little bit deeper until he could destroy the man. And so Satan does that with you and I as well. He observes. He watches us. He just watches. He sees what we look at, you know, when we're in a place, uh, you know, walking through a bookstore. He just observes what kind of books that we look at. He watches when we're on the internet and he sees what kind of websites that we go to and the things that we're attracted to and he just watches he's we don't even know that he's there just lurking in the shadows just taking notes and he sees what our weaknesses are and he just makes a plan and and at the right time once he lines everything up just the way he wants he'll launch an attack based upon what he sees going on in our lives because that's what he does he just observes well, the second thing after his observation, after the first while, the second while is, well, then he brings the temptation. See, after the observation and he makes a plan, now he can bring in the temptation or the, you know, the thing that he's going to use to try to take us down. Now, there's bad news and there's good news uh, in this arena of temptation. The bad news is, here's the bad news, guys is that it doesn't take much, does it? <laughs> if we have a weakness, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't take much to get us to, to be distracted or to, to turn aside. Here's the good news. Good news is, Satan has a very small playbook. You know, if you want to defeat another team or an opponent in any game, if you can get your hands on their playbook, you've got the edge. And the Bible tells us the playbook of Satan, and what we've learned is that it's very small. Very small. He has, you know, a run play, a pass play, and basically a Statue of Liberty, you know. And then he runs it in very, various, uh, you know, different modes and, and ways, but it's very small, and it's given to us. It's in 1 John chapter 2. And this is an area of Scripture that uh, you should be well familiar with. Uh, many of you probably know what I'm going to say before I even say it, and that's good. If not, you should memorize these couple of verses here. They're that important. But it's 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. And John writes, and he says this. He says, Love not the world. And that's speaking of the world system. That's not, you know, not, not necessarily a tree or an ocean wave or you know, the way this. he's not talking about that kind of thing. He's talking about the world's system. The cultures, the politics, the pop culture. You know, the pleasures, that's the thing. He's talking about the world system, the world that's controlled by Satan. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again, it's talking about the world system. I, I so appreciate creation. I enjoy the works of God's hands. And we're called to. The Psalms oftentimes talk talk to us about the things that are to be learned and enjoyed of God through what he's made that's not what it's talking about it's talking about the systems he says verse 16 for all that is in the world and now here it is these are Satan's three plays here's his whole playbook right here all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. The lust of the flesh. That is, the things that our flesh, the sinful things that our flesh is attracted to, drawn to, and indulges in. The lusts of our flesh. And then, the lusts of the eyes. The things that attract our attention through the eye gate. The things that we see that draw us away And then the pride of life, that is the boasting, the climbing, the positioning, you know, the manipulating in order to exalt our position or to give ourselves an appearance of exaltation or an exalted place. And as you go through the scripture and you look at the ways that Satan was able to take people out, you can always attach the temptation to one of these three things. You recall in the Garden of Eden, the very first temptation, the very first fall, it was Eve. as She sat there at the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And Satan came to her, and he, he, after making his observations and doing everything that he did, the time came, he went right in, and he said, you know, hath God said you cannot eat from every tree? And you know, she gets into this discussion, and he says, nah, you can eat it, nothing's going to happen. I'm paraphrasing for time, you know. But it says this, you can go back and look it up later, Genesis chapter 2, it says this. It says that when she saw the tree was beautiful to behold and that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh, and that it was desirous to make one wise, the pride of life, she took of the fruit and ate and gave also to her husband Adam and he did eat. And their eyes were opened and they learned, they realized that they were naked. You see, the lust of the eyes, it's beautiful to look at. The lust of the flesh, it's good for food and the pride of life. It makes one wise. When Satan tempted Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights, he ate no food and afterwards he was a hunger, it says. He came to him and he tempted him three times. Command this stone that it be made bread, the lust of the flesh. You need to eat. You need to satisfy that drive that's in you to be fed, to eat, to be satisfied. Satisfy the drive. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not the right time. It's not his will right now, but it was the lust of the flesh. It says he took him to a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them in a moment of time. And he said, all this will I give you if you will bow down and worship me. The lust of the eyes, he showed it to him. And then he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, throw yourself down from here. Isn't it written in the Bible that he will give his angels charge over you and they will bear you up lest at any time you should dash your foot against a stone? Hey, in the presence of all the Jews that you've come to save, throw yourself down and let them see your glory, your power, the pride of life. Let them see your glory. Let them see how powerful you are. The pride of life. You see, his temptations are always the same. Whether it was Eve In the Garden of Eden, whether it was Jesus after 40 days of fasting, or whether it's you and I in the time that he makes his, what's that word, assault upon us. It's always one of those things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. And it's always very calculated. It's always measured, just like a lion makes a very measured and calculated attack after planning and observing for a long time. And so he tempts us. And then number three is enslavement, accusation, and condemnation. Is that if after his plan is made and his attack, his temptation is launched, then after he gets us to fall, he brings us into bondage. He brings us into bondage to the thing he seeks to at least. And then he'll accuse us and then he'll condemn us. And, and we all experience that. What, it, what it's like to be in those clutches. I remember one time hearing someone say that Satan, first, he'll, he'll try to get a toehold in your life. Just a teeny little area where he can get in. But then that toehold quickly becomes a foothold. And then pretty soon that foothold will become a stronghold. And he'll, he'll grab us and he'll bring us into bondage in that area where he sees our weakness with the, with the desire to take us down, to separate us from the Father and then so so enslavement and then he accuses us uh, you know brings our guilt upon us you know it's funny I remember um, when I was five years old I have a, a sister who's five years younger than me uh, my brother's just two years older than me you know we were going to be the only two and my sister came along uh, unexpectedly later on and I remember when I was five years old being in the hospital uh, visiting my mother and my brand new baby sister and we were in the, in, a, in a room you know beyond the waiting room, and there was a button on the, the wall that said emergency, and it had to do with like if, uh, you know, you have a health emergency, you push the button, and everybody comes running. I remember my brother said to me, and here I am, a little five-year-old, my brother's seven, he said, push the button. And I, 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 I'm i five years old, I don't read. I said, well, what's it do? Nothing. I think it's just, it, 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 and he, I don't remember what he said, but he said, just push it. And I was like, I don't think it's a good idea. He's like, I, he's like he, he said to me, he says, they disconnect him anyways. They don't even... He's like, just push it. And and sure enough, so I push the button and all these bells and things, and everybody comes running. And as soon as they come in, he looks and he goes, he did it. (laughs) Satan, right? (laughs) That's what he does. He he tempts us. He ensnares us. And then what he does to us is that he, he, he spins things around like this, and he speaks to us as though he's God. And he speaks very gently, and he says, my son, I'm so disappointed in you. I thought you'd be further along than this by now. I didn't think you would have this struggle. I just don't think I'm gonna be able to do with your life what I, what I wanted to do with your life. You're just not, we go, I know, I know, I know. And, 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 and what does it do? You know what it does? And this is how you know it's Satan, is that it drives us away from the Lord. Who am I now to, to think that I can just approach God boldly? Who am I to step out in faith and take God at His word and think that I can be used of Him, because now I, I mean who I, I'm I'm not in right standing. I got to make this right, and, and and it separates us from the Lord. And once you become separated from the Lord, the wedge can only be driven further, see, unless of course by faith we repent and just turn back and realize that's not that's not God. See, conviction of the Spirit. When we we sin or when we're in a bad place, conviction of the Spirit will drive us closer to God. It will turn us back to the Lord. Condemnation from Satan drives us away from the Lord. But that's his method. That's what he wants. He wants us to be separated from the Father. So, the wiles of the devil. He observes, he tempts, he enslaves and snares and condemns. That's what he does. He's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Separate them from the fold and then take them out. So what are our defenses? How do we stand? What are the things practically that we can do as men? We're all men and we all get tempted. How can we stand against these things that we might not be ensnared or taken out like Samson was? Five things and you can write these things down and, 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 and maybe these aren't you know like what you're expecting um, but that's that 's on purpose because if you were expecting it you wouldn't need to be here you could just read it you know so uh, you're probably expecting okay Ephesians six, the armor you know no'll we'll, we 'll touch on it, but not really. Uh, five things that you could do guaranteed satan can 't touch you. number one is that you stay in the narrow way you stay in the narrow way Matthew chapter seven verses thirteen and fourteen. Jesus said, let me turn there. He says, enter ye in at the straight gate, the the narrow gate. He says, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads unto life and few there be that find it. Now, we walk a narrow path. We're accused as Christians of being (laughs) narrow-minded, you know, because we don't want to get involved in the things of this world. We don't want to give ourselves to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And the longer you walk with the Lord... the the narrower it seems the path becomes as you realize, you know, what it is that we're called unto and the great number of things that there are that can wipe us out from it. But when you're walking in the narrow way, that is when you're walking in obedience to what God says, not because you're restricted, but because you're safe, you see, you cannot be taken out by the enemy. There's a great scene in the Pilgrim's Progress where christian is is walking he's going towards the celestial city you know he's christian is allegorical he represents the christian and and he's going towards the celestial city and he's walking on the narrow way that the evangelist had set him in and so he's walking this way and as he's climbing up this particularly difficult hill these two men come running down the hill back at him panicking with you know fear in their faces And, and he says where are you going and he says, well, we were going to the celestial city, but no more. And he said, why not? What, what happened? He says, there are two lions in the path ahead, and that's it. We're done. We've had it. There's no way to get past those two lions. And he says, well, but this is the way. I mean, you know that this is the way. There's only one way. This is where the path leads. And, and if it leads to the lions, no, no, you go on, not us. And they depart and Christian makes his way up the hill and he sees these two ferocious lions there in the path. And and, and he comes to a place where I've got to make a decision. Am I gonna go back? Am I gonna stand here for the rest of my life? Or am I gonna go right where this path leads, which is right where those two lions are? And he decides, well, this is the way I'm to go. That's the way to the city I'm going. And so he walks, he stays right in the path, right in the center of where that path is. And when those two lions lunge at him, he realizes that they're leashed and that they cannot reach him so long as he is in the narrow path. And it's an excellent illustration of the point at hand, of the principle. When you stay in the path of righteousness, when you walk in the ways of the Lord, Satan, though he be ferociously appearing to be, you know, able to wipe you out, he can't reach you, see? When you wander out of the way of understanding, then you're in a vulnerable position and you can be taken out. I think of uh, Solomon. I've often envied him, the wisest man that ever lived. I mean, the guy knew how to work every system to his favor and he knew how to prosper, he knew how to run a kingdom beyond anyone that ever lived. But he was given a command by God, the one who made him a king. And here was the command. He said, when you become a king, he said three things. Don't multiply horses. Don't multiply wives. and Don't multiply silver and gold. Don't exalt and trust in military strength. Rely upon me. Don't trust in political alliances. That's what wives were to kings. They were political advantage, peace covenants with other nations. Don't rely upon that, God said. You don't need to multiply wives and don't multiply silver and gold. Don't trust in the strength of an economy. Trust in me. Not that those things are, well, you know, uh, different study. He says, don't do it. Solomon said, well, I, I know what the word of God says. I know what God said. And I'm not supposed to do these things. But he's given me this incredible wisdom, and I know how to handle those things. And so every year, Solomon would go and get horses from Egypt, 12,000. The Bible tells us he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And The Bible tells us that the revenue of gold that he took in year by year was 666 talents of gold every year. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot. And, and, and that there was so much gold in his days that it says silver was esteemed like stones. There was nothing to it. So he just blew right through the command. He walked right off the narrow way and he just said, hey, let's broaden things out a little bit. I can handle it. Well, those things became the downfall of Solomon, number one, at the end of his life because the Bible tells us, 1 Kings chapter 10, you can read it. It tells us that his wives turned his heart away from the Lord and he served other gods in his old age. He wasn't able, even with all of the wisdom that you can have as a man, more than we have for sure, you cannot do things that God says don't do and not be affected by it. You don't have to be as wise as Solomon. You just have to do what God says. See, it wiped him out. And not only wiped him out, it wiped out the nation. Because he built a temple to a false god on the Mount of Olives in the city of Jerusalem that became the foundation for the idolatry that affected the whole nation and ended up bringing them into captivity. So the wisest king that ever lived, that made the economy so great that he would forever be praised, Also sowed the seed that destroyed the whole nation. Why? Because he walked off the narrow path. When you and I just simply do what God says, Satan can't make a plan that's going to take you out in 15 years. Because, see, if Satan makes a plan that's going to take you out in 15 years, you won't know about it until 15 years from now, and then it's too late. But, see, he can't make that plan. If I go outside of the will of God and I just say, you know what, I'm going to marry an unbeliever. Because I can handle it. I know how. And so I go outside of that way. That might not come back to bite me for 15 years, but when it does, I can't fix it or stop it. You see? And it's like that with every principle that God gives us in the word. You obey the word, walk the narrow path, and you'll be safe. But he that wandereth out of the way of understanding will remain in the congregation of the dead, the proverb tells us. Stay in the narrow way. Number two, distance yourself from the thing that tempts you. You don't want to be taken out, you don't want to be destroyed by the roaring lion, then distance yourself from the thing that tempts you. Every one of us has a Delilah or an Achilles heel or something, Solomon's gold or whatever it is, there is something in each one of our lives that you know if you get too close to it, it's going to destroy you. 10 other men could get close to it and they're not even affected by it but if you get close to it you're going to get wiped out and every one of us have that and we all know what it is. In Genesis chapter 39 verse 10 17 year old I should say 17 year young Joseph in the height of the sexual discovery and temptation that a man can have with zero accountability And no one watching over him and being given reign and complete responsibility of this rich man's estate is tempted by his attractive wife. Come lie with me, she said. And Joseph, as we read Genesis 39, he was prepared for the temptation. And it tells us there, and I'll read you the verse. It's Genesis 39, verse 10. It says, but he, uh, it says, and it came to pass As she spake to Joseph Joseph, day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or, listen, to be with her. In other words, he didn't just say, you know what, every time she asks me, I'm going to say no. Because, listen, that's good. But there ain't no man, especially at that age and in that situation, that's going to always have that kind of strength of the presence of mind or be able to withstand that every time. And so he didn't just say, well, I'm always just going to say no. That's, That's my method. I'm just always going to say no. No, no, he said, I'm not going to let myself get into the position where I have to say no. I'm not going to even be in the house. I know where she is, and I'm going to be aware of that, and I'm going to stay away so that that temptation doesn't hit me. He knew the weakness of his own flesh. And for you and I, men, if we allow ourselves to be in the presence of the thing that tempts us, we're going to fall. Because the, the spirit is willing, Jesus said, but the flesh is what? It's Weak, and it's weak, and there is no man that can stand against the power of sin in the flesh, and we all have that. I'm amazed as I talk to men about the things, the struggles, the sins, The problems that they have, I'm amazed how many men are not willing to do this thing of put a distance between yourself and the things that tempt you. Oftentimes, I talk to men, and they'll tell me what their struggle is, and I'll say, I have the solution. Here's the solution, and I'll hand them a baseball bat. Put it through your TV screen. Put it through your computer tower and your monitor. Have batting practice with your smartphone. (laughs) <laughs> that's the solution to your problem. And they'll look at me and they'll say, yeah, but that that's, that's, that's not practical. That's not practical, you know, they'll say. And, and oftentimes, I, I've said it, I've said, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I, I know you want the magic scripture, the magic verse or the magic prayer or something that's going to somehow help you with this thing. But but I can't, if you're not willing to set a distance between yourself and that thing that's tempting you, I can't help you. We'll say, "Well but 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 I come to church I'll come to church four times a week. I'm going to come to church Sunday morning and and, and and Saturday morning and Wednesday night and and I go to a home group during the week I'm going to go I'm going to dig in I'm going to that's fine, that's good, that's great. But listen, you can have four chemo treatments a week if you have cancer, but if you keep putting carcinogens and cancer-causing agents into your body, then all the chemo in the world is just going to be that. It's not going to help, see? You've got to set a distance between yourself and the thing that tempts you. It's important, see? So whether it's drugs and alcohol or those types of, of different things, or whether it's relationships or whether it's things that you look at with your eyes or whether it's a love of money or whether, whatever it is, there has to be a distance. We have to be wise enough, men, to do it. How do you do that? Well, sometimes it's a baseball bat. Sometimes it's accountability. Sometimes you need that accountability. Mike Ditka, who was, you know who Mike Ditka is. I don't tell you who Mike Ditka is. He had a very foul mouth. And he, and he didn't want that. He didn't like that about himself. And so he went to his team at the beginning of the year, the first day of camp, and he said this to them. He said, he said men, I, I, I want to stop swearing. And so here's what I'm saying in the presence of all of you right now. He says, every time I use a curse word this year, this entire season, in your presence, I'm going to send $1,000 to such and such a charity. Every single word, $1,000 to such and such a charity. You know how much money Mike Dick has spent that year? Zero. Not a dime. And when asked about that, his reply to it was this. He said, a little accountability goes a long way. And it's true. And part of setting a distance between yourself and that thing that tempts you is setting up some accountability. Some people that know you, some people that know the things that are going on in your life that you can trust, that you can share with, that, that will hold you accountable to it. And just knowing that you're going to be asked, <laughs> there's strength in that, just in that in and of itself. And so set a distance. Number three, and we've got to hurry now, we'll move through these, is Resistance. James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. James writes this. He says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He, He basically tells us three things there. First of all, he says, humble yourself. To humble yourself means to acknowledge that you have a weakness. You don't have to walk around like Samson thinking nothing can get you. To humble yourself is to realize, yeah, there are things that will destroy me if the right circumstances afford. That's to humble yourself. Then, now, submit to God. Is that, God, I know that you're the only one that can protect and preserve me and keep me from falling into this trap, into these things. And then the third thing is your part. He says, resist. Submit to God and resist. The devil. That means that you have an active part to play. And that's a term of battle. It implies a fight, a struggle, a war. Peter says the same thing, and it's back in the verse that we began with in in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, Right after he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour, he says this, verse 9 Whom resist? steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world, is that there is a fight. These, these are the words I'm going to read to you right now. These are the words that are associated with temptation and in our lives. Suffering. The Bible talks about be suffering being tempted. There is an element of suffering when we're tempted, isn't there? So we suffer when, uh, when, when we're tempted in, in that way. It also talks about a fight, and it talks about a use of weapons, employing weapons. So there is a resistance. It isn't easy to battle temptation, but what are we called to do? We're called to resist. We're called to stand against it, to not give in to it, but we resist the devil. And the Bible tells us that if we resist, he will flee. And it's amazing, isn't it, how a temptation can feel so strong in one moment and then at another moment it could be like there's no appetite or there never was for that particular thing that that was tempting me. And that's why we're called to resist. We fight against it. Now, when you give in to temptation, your power to resist is broken down. But when you stand against temptation, your power to resist is built up. It's an incredible principle, see, You know, back just to, to, to reference Job once more, when Satan said, you've put a hedge around him, you've built a fence, you've built a barrier, and I can't get at him. The thing that Satan doesn't mention there, but that the Bible reveals, is that Job had a part to play in building that wall. It wasn't just God who built it. Job fortified it and kept it strong. When Amaziah the king fought against the Edomites and won, he was the king of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, Judah. He got lifted up in pride, and he thought, you know what? I'm strong enough to go battle against Joash, the king of the northern tribes, and bring, bring Israel back into submission to, to one king. And so he wrote a letter, and he said, let's fight. He basically said, step up to the king of the north. And The king of the north wrote a letter back, and he said, sit down. He said, you had a little victory over the Edomites. He said, you've lifted up with pride. He says, don't meddle to your own hurt that you'll be destroyed. But he was lifted up in pride. And you know what happens when man and stubborn pride meet together? And so Amaziah challenged Joash and was defeated soundly. His tail was tucked. And and it tells us this in the passage. It's uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 25. It tells us that the defenses were broken down. The walls were broken down there in Jerusalem. And when we lose a battle, when we meddle with things that we shouldn't be meddling with, and we get defeated, part of the fallout of the battle is that our defenses are broken down. And so when we give in, that's a consequence of it. When we stand, those... those and that's why when you beat temptation, it's easier to beat it next time. But when you give in to temptation... It's easier to give in to temptation the second time. And so it's important that the resistance be built up. Number four is look for the open door. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, it says, But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able to withstand, but will with that temptation also provide a door of escape that you may be able to bear it. And with every temptation that we face, God is faithful to put an escape, an ejection seat, like they have in an airplane you know, or something, to, to get out of the situation or to defeat that temptation. And so you get in the habit of looking for the open door. And God always provides an open door. There's always a way of escape. And then finally, uh, lastly, number five, is the word of God. The Word of God. Turn to 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 and this is where we're finished. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now listen, most of you know know the, the scripture where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the one I was talking about earlier. And most of you know that when Jesus was put to it by Satan on three occasions, three temptations, Jesus met that temptation with the scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And three temptations were met with scripture. Scripture is our sword, the weapon of offense when it comes to defeating temptation. But listen, listen it isn't just knowing the scripture and having the right scripture to say when the temptation comes. Notice what Peter says here. Look at verse 3. It says, According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us Exceeding great and precious promises. Speaking of what? The Word of God. That by these, you might be partakers of the divine nature. That you might become Christ-like. That by giving yourself to the Word of God, the promises of God, the principles of God, that you might become like the Lord. Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption of That is in the world through lust. So that speaks of knowing the word, knowing the promises, knowing the precepts and the principles, the things that God tells us to do. That's intellectual, it's studious, it's what we're doing right now. We're we're learning things. That's part of it. But if you just go that far, it's not enough. It's not about just knowing what the Bible says. Well, what is it then? Verse 5. And besides this, meaning in addition to this, also, notice, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. That's moral behavior, moral excellence. Add to your faith moral excellence. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. That means patience with self-control. And to temperance, patience and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity, or agape love in the Greek, the, you know, the highest expression of the character and nature of God. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off. Now, notice, you can know the Scripture. You can know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You could have it memorized, the whole thing. And yet, according to Peter's assessment, you could still be blind. Because it isn't just about knowing it, it's about doing it. It's not about knowing it, it's about living it. Are you living the Word? But he that lacks these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And here it is, verse 10. Here's the promise. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, not if you know these things, but if you do these things, you shall never fall. See, if you know the word and put it into practice in your life, you're not going to fall. Satan's not going to be able to get you. If you do these things, even the things that we talk of this morning, if you stay in the narrow way, and if you distance yourself from the thing that tempts you the most, and things that tempt you the least, but distance yourself from those things that will wipe you out. If you resist and don't give in in the time of temptation, and there's always a time of temptation. If you look for the open door, even if the open door like it was with Joseph means run for your life, you know. And if you give yourself to the word of God, not just knowing it, but doing it, the promise is you will never fall. He cannot. That lion can plan and plot and prowl as much as he wants, but he will have no place and no opportunity to grab hold of you, your life, or your families. And so may God give us wisdom May he strengthen us as men that we might understand who our adversary is, that he exists, that he's lurking in the shadows, that he's a careful observer and a diligent note-taker, and that we might be diligent to add to our faith those things that are necessary, that we might stand against the wiles of the devil. Amen? Amen.